Damas and Aaron, welcome to Island Voices. Please hit the red subscribe button to the right of your screen and welcome aboard. Folks, next year is going to mark the 30th year that today's guest retired from professional football. Yet his story and his mindset is very much of what the NFL and I think all of professional sports needs more than anything else right now. And you know what? I'd say that goes for our entire nation as well. In an era hypnotized by money, egos, and seemingly endless and shameless self-promotion, this man and his legacy defines dignity. His is a story that needs never be forgotten, and I hope that in retelling it, that some people will take these lessons to heart. Because I think the finest compliment I can pay to this man is that when I try to teach my own two sons how to conduct themselves on any team or in any organization, I would simply say, watch the way this man did it and just follow those examples. Because he wasn't just a pioneer, he was a visionary, a tough but well-behaved kid from West Palm Beach, Florida, who prided himself on traveling from neighborhood to neighborhood with his guys, dominating and pick up football games throughout the area. And when he landed at the University of Miami in 1975, this was well before Jimmy Johnson or Dennis Erickson ever got their hands on that program. And it was even before Howard Schnellenberger had arrived, right before. A pioneer indeed. This program had never had a thousand yard rusher until our guests set that mark in 1979. And it would be upon that very foundation that our guests set for that program, a newfound mindset, a revamped work ethic that the University of Miami Hurricanes would rebuild under coach Howard Schnellenberger and turn that program into national champions. But our guests knew that it was his destiny to continue on to bigger things still. In fact, he told a friend precisely that. He said, it is my destiny to play in the NFL and to one day return to the state of Florida, win a Super Bowl, and earn MVP of that Super Bowl. Now, <laughs> that is a bit brash, especially from a man as humble as he is. But that was the prediction of this kid from West Palm Beach. And that was his intention. And when he was selected eighth overall in the 1979 NFL draft by the team that was then in the great gateway to the West, the St. Louis Cardinals, football Cardinals. Yes, kids, they were the St. Louis football Cardinals back then. He proceeded to rush for 1,605 yards as a rookie a mark that puts him fifth all-time among all rookie rushers. And mind you, this was on a team that was at the time at the very bottom of the NFC East. And he still ran for 1,605 yards. Yet after seven and a half seasons as the franchise player in St. Louis, he suddenly got a phone call from someone claiming to be Bill Parcells the head coach of the New York Giants. So he hung up on him. <laughs> but the man called back 
And as it turned out, it was, in fact, Coach Bill Parcells, because our guest had been traded. In spite of being the greatest running back that franchise would ever know, he was traded. But when he came to the greatest city on earth, it was not to be as the leading man, but rather for the first time in his career, the first time in his entire football life, really, it was to play a supporting role. And now, as you've probably heard me say, the characters define the history. Well, there was no lack of characters on this New York Giant team. And the history that results from those characters who defined it is one of the more epic and beautiful stories in football, but also across all of sports, and I think all of society. Because after illustrating unparalleled humility in accepting his role, not only as a backup, but as a guide to these new blue chip young rushers that his team was bringing in, our guest quite nobly became an invaluable mentor to these young bucks, particularly to a Georgia Bulldog, 12 years his junior, by the name of Rodney Hampton, the Giants' first-round pick in 1990, and by all means, their front man for that season. Our guest took him under his wing and showed him the ropes, taught him how to stay healthy on this brutal battlefield, and eventually became so comfortable in his role as Mr. Miyagi that when the team found themselves in the divisional playoffs against the Chicago Bears, our guest hadn't bothered to put on his game pants. <laughs> no, he had inadvertently slipped into his practice pants for that game. A little grayer, a little beat up, didn't quite fit as well. But what was the difference? He was really there to help coach the starter, Rodney Hampton, right? Well, sort of. Until Rodney Hampton goes down with a broken shin bone. And suddenly, this old warhorse, with years and years of NFL miles on his odometer, is asked to rise off that bench and show these young men how an old school dude from decades past gets his work done. And together with fellow backup Jeff Hostetler, our guest proceeded not only to lead his team to Super Bowl victory, but this old seasoned veteran himself in the twilight of his career, would fulfill that prophecy that he had laid down way back when, when he was an ambitious young draft pick and was named most valuable player in Super Bowl 25 in the state of Florida in his 13th NFL season. Practice pants and all. Damas and Aaron, mesdames et messieurs, damas y caballeros, Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor to welcome the single greatest NFL player not in the Hall of Fame yet, and a wonderful human being, Mr. Otis Jerome Anderson. Welcome, sir. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. Well said, Chance. I, I, I've never heard it put that way. Well done, my friend. Well done. You deserve it, Otis. I mean, you have an incredible story. and what 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 impresses me more than anything is your humility um and your generosity and, and phil sims said it himself phil sims said you were a remarkable teammate i mean that's that's the greatest 
testimony I think someone could ask for. Well, I tell you, man, when you come to a team that had the characters they had on there in, in 86 with the leadership of George Martin, Harry Carson, um, you know, guys I played against for several years and and now I'm a part of them. It was um, it was exciting. It was exciting, but yes, very humbling because um, the role that I had to play, uh, I felt that I, I still had a lot left. But that was one of the greatest Russian performance that season by one of the Giants, all-time great Joe Mars that they'd ever had. And I don't know because my presence being there maybe got a little more out of him. I have no idea. But I know we rode Joe back all the way into Super Bowl 21 and later on, Sims led us to the victory. So I had some great, great friends and great characters. I said, Maurice Cawthon, Tony Galbert, were my running back mates with George Adams, Lee Roussan, and then we had Joe Mars. So our room was pretty impressive when you thought of leadership and knowledge. And then you had the quarterback, Rutledge, Hostetler, and Sims, you, you can't beat that. You, you can't beat it at all. Tight end, we had Mark Bavaro, Zeke Moak. It's just great when you just can come on a team and just exist and not have to do anything else. Don't disrupt it. Just, just blend in. And that's all I tried to do. And now you're coming off seven and a half seasons with, with the St. Louis Cardinals. They were the St. Louis Cardinals back then. And you were the franchise guy. You, you were the man. You, to this day remain their leading rusher all time almost by double wow you you're you had i believe 7999 yards with them couldn't find one yard isn't that crazy <laughs> what's up with the one yard dude one, come on i'm telling you it's a one yard in there somewhere that they could have made it even eight thousand. i i don't understand it i don't <laughs> get it so no. was was st louis a dollar short short and a day late Absolutely. You both, you and I both know that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's that like? I mean, look, I never played professional sports. Um, what's it like to be traded and, and, and be traded by someone you're with seven and a half years that, I mean, there's gotta be a, 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 a familial kind of sense by that point that you've been around forever with these guys and it's, it's a whole career unto itself. What's that like? Well, it was definitely disheartening because as you say, I, I put seven years there. I had become a pillar in the community. My my best friends were Roy Green and Leonard Smith. And, you know, Theodos Brown got traded, you know, early on. But it, it was, it was just, it, it was surreal because um, how it was done. You know, Gene Stallings came in as a head coach uh, during the summer and, you know, when they get head coaches, they make changes. And always there's a sacrificial lamb in order to uh, get control of the team. And players that they felt threatened by, seems to be all coaches feel threatened by certain players, they make sure that those players with management approval uh, get traded or are sent away so that they can, you know, take control and also show that anybody on that team can be expendable. And I always said, Roy, Roy Green and I always used to say to each other, as hard as we're working for this organization, we don't see that we may ever get in a Super Bowl. But wouldn't it be nice if they gave us one of those opportunities to go and win a championship? 
And, you know, and we looked at each other, we go like, that'll never happen. First of all, we are considered franchise players and they, they're not going to trade us, you know, not until we just really, really can't produce. And at that point in time, you know, we were like six years in when we were talking about that and, and, you know, and behold, look what happened. <laughs> uh, destiny is, uh, is sometimes a beautiful thing. Um, did I have it right? Were you, were you at practice with the Cardinals when yeah. you got the call? Um, normally when you get traded, uh, well, put it this way. Coach Stalling and I had a, had a miscommunication. Might not get a phone call from uh, uh, his office saying that they want to sit down and meet. So I, I, I go there and uh, I, I come to his office. He literally had me sit in his office for 45 minutes just to piss me off. This is this I knew we, were, we weren't going to be good. Yeah. He, walking around, I could see him. And I'm sitting there looking at the reception going, whoa, what, what's going on? And she said, I, I don't know, Mr. Anderson. I, I'm just waiting for him to give me the okay to sing you in the back. I said, well, you ain't got to worry about getting me okay. I'm up out of here. So I get up to leave, and that's when she said, no, 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 Mr. Coach, I want to speak to you. So I go to the room, to the, back there to his office. We sit down. He look at me, and I look at him for about maybe two or three minutes. We have a staring contest. <laughs> I mm. mean, nobody's talking. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. And then he said, uh, he said, well, you know, I can hold a grudge. I said, ooh, well, I can hold one too. And then I said, you know what? And I thought about where I was, and I thought about what I stand for, what all I put into the organization. I said, you know what, Coach Stallings? I said, I'm going to be a team player. You know, oh, no, 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 I understand. I understand you you and Stump, I, I, I love you two guys. There's no way, I mean, forget about the rumors. You're not going anywhere. I said, you know, Coach, listen, whatever beef we had, we don't have it no more. I said, I, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. If you want me to jump, I'm going to ask you how high. You want me to roll, I won't ask you how many times you want me to do it. All I want to do is play professional football and be the best I can be on the field, off the field, and to my teammates. That's all I want to be. He said, well, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, we, we run through uh, some plays. So we were talking about how they, you know, run the ET stump or the X stump uh, stunt. And, and stump and I was talking to him about it. He just walked away. Right in the middle of the conversation, he just walked away. And I looked at stump. I said, well, that's weird. You know, he said, yeah, what's up with that? And then I get a tap on my shoulder. And it was Larry Wilson. He said, I need you to walk with me. I said, what's up, coach? Normally when player personnel come on the field, there's a serious situation either at home or family mm -hmm. or something along those lines. And my question to him was, what is going on in my family? He said, everybody's good, but I do need for you to walk with me. So we're still on a water break. So I start walking and Roy start calling me like, just where you going? And I go to stop and Larry said, just keep walking, keep walking. You know, I'm like, Larry, what's up? He said, just keep walking. And Roy said, where you going? So I get almost to the clubhouse and I stopped. I said, Coach Larry, I, I said, Larry, you don't tell me what's going on. I ain't going no further. So what, what's going on? And that's when he told me I was just traded to the Giants. And I was like, come on, man, really? And I thought they were joking. And that's where what you said earlier about hanging up on Coach Parcells and all that. That is true because I didn't believe it. Parcells 
had been trying to, Parcells was looking for a punt returner. Well, he got McConkie. He was looking for a punt returner. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to stop Mitchell. But Gene Stallings told Parcell, how about I give you O.J. Anderson? And Parcell said, whoa, wait a minute. I won't stop the run back punts, but you wouldn't give me O.J. Anderson? Right. And and I, Lawrence told me that Parcell went to him and said, Lawrence, we got a chance to get O.J. Anderson. What you think? Lawrence said, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> you get him if you can get him, coach. Are you? Not even with no hesitation. That's what Lawrence told me he said. And then Jim Burke, same thing. He said, Jim Burke, you played two years for him in mind. What kind of player? Jim Burke said to him, coach, you're not going to get a more committed player, uh, a team player, a player that don't smoke, don't drink, don't swear, don't hang out. You're getting a, a pretty good player. Parcells said, well, that's all he needed to have. I needed to know. And uh, I get a phone call, as I said, that Wednesday midday, and uh, they told me I was traded to the Giants. Come out of the the, the the Midwest after seven years, seven and a half seasons, working working real hard out there, and suddenly you're in New York. What was different? <laughs> Everything. I was scared to death. I was a guy from West Palm Beach, Florida. I I didn't hear nothing but bad things about New York and New Jersey. You know the the, the crime. That uh, I, I was just. I was like, this ain't me, uh, and, you know, and I just couldn't see myself being in New York, New Jersey. I, I just did not see that happening. Um, um, just, it, it took me almost two years before I went to New York. And when I, I mean, for me to drive to New York on my own, I I had cars pick me up and take me to do appearances, but um, I, I, I didn't drive into New York for two years. I just didn't know, I didn't understand New York, I didn't understand you know, the avenues and the street, and it was just a blur. How important was that cast of characters, that group, that collective that was the New York Giants at at that time in 1986? Lawrence Taylor, Carl Banks, Leonard Marshall, Jim Burt, Coach Parcells. Tell me about those people and what they meant to you in coming as as a newcomer to New York. Well... George Martin and, and um, was probably and Tony Gabbard were the two guys that really kind of welcomed me into that the fold. Um, everybody else was like, "This is the dude that we've been playing against for the last, you know, three years, two years, seven years." Even go one step further than that, Chance. You know, before the draft, Ray Perkins came to Miami, took me out, and told me that they were picking seventh in the first round. And they were going to pick me. Right. right. So and, you originally thought you were going to the Giants out yes, of college. Yes, Ray, Ray met with me. But 
that Sunday after I talked to my agent, I get a call from uh, um, player personnel, Larry Wilson. Uh, he said, hey, we drafted eighth in the first round and we're looking to draft you. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Wilson. I don't think I'm going to be there. I got commitment from the Giants. He said, well, listen, things happen. <laughs> Just had a long way of doing it. Right. You went, you went yeah. A different, uh, yeah. Took a little longer. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, let, let's talk about that real quick because I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the opening, but you played in three different decades in the NFL. Only running back to ever done that, I believe. Amazing. So you're going back. Your first year in the NFL was 1979. You were playing with guys that had been there since the 60s. Jim Hart was one of your quarterbacks. You had a guard named Bob Young. Yep. These guys were born in the 40s, early 40s. These guys wow. were old school. You had um, Deardorff was one of your teammates. Dan Deardorff, yes. who had yes. been in there wow. since 1971. Tell me, how different was it then? Oh, man, it was totally different. Uh, again, uh, if you look at how we were brought up back then, you didn't have music in the locker room. Everybody, you know, uh, put on their game face. Um, there was smoking in the locker room. I, I, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go back. There's smoking yeah. in the locker room? Listen. Come on. I get I get to the Cardinals. I'm a, <laughs> this Chance, this blew my mind. I was told when I was coming up, if you're an athlete, you don't drink, smoke, or do drugs. It just didn't give you a chance right, to be the right, right. That was my belief. So I'm sitting in the locker room. I come in the locker room, getting ready to play the Dallas Cowboys, first game of my professional career. And my whole offensive line, Tom Banks and the rest of them, God bless their soul, they're smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and I, can't, got, I can't imagine. I can't yeah. imagine that. Wayne Mars was my blocking fullback, and I'm looking at Wayne. I'm like, is this for real? He said, that's not the way you see him at halftime. <laughs> wow. What's better about the NFL then than now? I mean, what's one of the main, what's one of the most important aspects of the NFL back then that is different now? I think we stayed together a lot longer. You know, teams wanted you. You know, you 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 weren't jumping around like these kids are doing today. They, you know they on a team for a year or two and then they up and out. No, we were committed. And that's what I noticed more important than anything else is, is the commitment to stay on your team and, and build that, that unity that you need to be successful. And I think you illustrate that you, you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. One of the most lasting images of you and, and, illustrating who you are and who you were as a player and as a teammate is that image in 1990 when Rodney Hampton came in and you, you were the decided supporting role at this point. You were a backup. You were there to help him adjust to the NFL, to advise him and help him learn, learn ways to to keep himself healthy and to do well in the league. And you, you took that role on gladly and you took it on with great responsibility and, and without complaining about it. And, and you took it on with an element of pride. And I remember that image. It was a video actually of you and him arm in arm 
yeah. before a game, warming up your hamstrings. Up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's so meaningful. It's so touching in so many ways that you were 12 years older than that guy. You were mm-hmm. like, you could have been a father figure. I'm sure you were a father figure to him. And to have somebody like that, like you, at that point, I mean, it's got to be scary as a rookie in the NFL. It's got to be, there's got to be all sorts of doubts and fears and um, concerns that's, uh, that a young 22-year-old kid has. Tell, tell me about that relationship a little bit. Well, I mean, you know what? That is so true. But it, just to show you how things work, when I got to the Cardinal, Willard Harrell, who had played at the University of Pacific, who had played for Green Bay and had got traded to the Cardinal uh, the year before I was drafted, he, he became, he taught me that. He, because I was competing for his position, Willard. Mm. And Willard saw the talent. He saw uh, so much more that I offered that he felt that he 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 didn't, he, he could give, but they had already made the commitment to me because I was a first round draft pick. So he took that father role, that mentor role, and he did me exactly the way I did Rodney. He took me on his way. He taught me how to be a professional. He, he said, anybody could be a pro but I want you to be a professional. And a professional has this responsibility. He said, uh, a pro, happy to be in the league, think about himself, you know, want to wine and dine, don't care about organization, don't care about who he hurt, uh, what he does. He said, but a professional thinks about organization, think about family, think about his career. And he makes choices based on those, those things. And he said, I want you to be a professional. I want you to be an all-around uh, professional athlete that can run, block, and catch the pass. And he molded that into me. And it took Willard, uh, you know, actually, m- me not doing certain things gave him two extra years to be a mentor. But you know one thing, when they draft a kid first round in any position, they expect him to play. Mm-hmm. So when they drafted Rodney, and I saw his ability on the field. I saw exactly what Willard said about me when he saw me. This guy got ability. And what I'm going to do is make him and help him become the best he can be. So when Parcells had mentioned to me about becoming a role model to Rodney, I had already had that frame of mind. I'd already saw his talent. He reminded me of me when I came into the league. He had the side. He had the wiggle room. He had the speed. He had the catching ability. It was instantly to, to, to clone. If I had to clone myself, Rodney was going to have been that clone because he had everything that I had when I came in as a rookie. So it was easy. It was like me being uh, uh, reincarnated and the Rodney, yes. But that character inside of you, inside of Otis Jerome Anderson, is why guys like Jim Burt and guys like, LT and the people who knew who you really were said, yes, Parcells, take him. He's the guy we want. Cause they were, they were getting a lot more than just a football player. They were getting somebody with great maturity and with great football and social IQ. And that's invaluable. And they weren't paying any extra for that. They, that came with the deal, didn't it? It did. And you read about IQ and character. Cause you know, the league had some back then. Um, I just, I just played. I just played. It was instilled in me when I was playing Little League football from a Dan Callaway to Mr. Melo Bradovich, who were K 
coaches who coached me when I played Pee Wee football, the importance of uh, accountability, respect, uh, playing hard, playing for your brother, you know, they, they instilled that into me and other guys. And we just parlayed that on as we got older, you know, because if you build a house on a good foundation, it going to stand a long time. And I had good foundation from my family, where my mom was everything, to my siblings, to my coaches. My foundation was strong. So it was hard for me to be on rocket ground. And I just tried to maintain that that information and the foundation that was already created. It's, it's, it's a great illustration of how important where you come from and, and who, who raises you. How, how important that is to people, it, it, even as a young kid. Um, and you, you're a perfect illustration of that. Now, you played youth football going back to you were six, seven, eight years old, something like that. Mm -hmm. When does somebody, when do you say, I'm going to be a pro football player? I'm going to make a living at this. When does that happen? Uh, you know what? That's a great question because you, you really don't know. I, I didn't say that when I was young. I, I never put that out there. Uh, I had an older brother named Marvin Smoke Anderson who uh, died in college, but they told me had he not died, he would have been as good as Gail Sayers. He was wow. just that dominant. Yes. He was out of West Palm Beach, Roosevelt High School. He was about five, nine. And, and people who played with me, who saw me as a, as, as a rookie, I remember playing against a guy who played defensive back for Atlanta Falcons. I never forget that in preseason. My first time I touched the football, I went 80 yards. Running in for halftime, the kid said to me, he said, you're not bad, but you couldn't even carry your, your brother's jock strap. Wow. How, how, I'm sorry, how much older was he than you? Um, he, he was a sophomore in college, and I was in sixth grade. And um, I remember when he passed away, the coach at that school told me, you'll never have to worry about a scholarship. I'll, I'll make sure you get one. No, I never thought about that. Um, when it became real to me, and this is the honest God truth, when I was in Miami and I was just playing my freshman year and Pete Banasak and Ted Hendricks walked into the locker room going to see the, the trainer because they was old friends. And I looked and I saw Ted Hendricks. I kind of knew who he was, but Pete Banasak, I didn't know. So I said to some people, I said, who's those guys? I said, who's that guy with, with Ted? They said, that Pete Banasak, the running back for the Oakland Ray. I said, wait a minute, that's Pete Banasak? I said, yeah. Pete Banasak at that time, he, to me, looked like an, a, a, a retired insurance man. <laughs> you know, because he had been in the league for a while. You know, he had already started balling, hair was thinning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was up in age. You know, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm literally 20, I'm uh, 18, 19 years old. I'm looking at a guy who's obviously in his late 30s and uh, kind of on his way out of football. When I saw him, I said to myself, Mr. Kelly, I could play pro football. <laughs> if he can play pro football, that's when it became real. It came into focus for you then. You said, that wait, wait a minute. This is, I can size this up. I, I think I could do this. Yeah. 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 Pete Banizak motivated me. One of the uh, most 
impressive things about you is that this I didn't know when you won the MVP of the Super Bowl of Super Bowl mm-hmm. 25 yes sir. you had the opportunity to say either I'm going to Disney World yep or because we were in a war we were it was during the Gulf War right. you you had the choice of also saying I dedicate this win to our troops yep And you chose the latter, and you are the only man who ever did that. Absolutely, yep. I take great pride in that. Uh, you know, the game was played on behalf of the country. We were in a, uh, a dire strait at that particular time, and and I and I soldier need a uplift. And you know, the game was thought not to be played. And uh, President at the time, uh, President Bush, thought it was. Uh, good for the country. So when I was given that opportunity, I ran with it. I, I, I felt that's the only thing you could say was to dedicate the win to our troops. Good for you, man. Good for yeah. you. That's a, that's a great thing. It's a great lesson. If you were going to say one thing to NFL players today in terms of mentoring them or improving the situation uh today what would you what would you say to them what would you want to tell them that playing in the nfl is a privilege you know it's it's and you need to understand that you represent a whole assortment of people past and present and you always want to leave the game with integrity and also have given you all. That's what I would tell the players today. That's a great message. I, yeah. I had the opportunity uh, uh, to be in a film about Kurt Warner, and I play um, Coach Mike Martz. Yeah, and, I can see that. <laughs> and in doing my research, you know, I, I, I'm a football fan, but I've never been in the NFL. And what what amazed me was the fraternal aspect of of that world uh particularly the older guys i mean particularly you guys and the the past generations how you guys stick together you you know you you were on different teams you may have been rivals whatever you may have been coaches versus players but the respect that you guys have for each other is remarkable well that's why that statement i said you know you represent more than just you and i think the players today they forget that they forget that the path that has been uh, laid were by greater men and uh, men who really laid it on the line to uh, represent their organization and the league and to make sure that the next generation and the next generation improved on that. And, uh, and, and that's what I pride myself on. And that was, that's my message. And it's a great message. I think playing professional football has has an element of national responsibility to it. 
you know, people are free to express their views and things as they as they need to. But there is an element. There's a pedestal that you are on once you achieve being a player in the in, in the National Football League. And I think it does come with some element of responsibility. And I think you 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 um, represented that magnificently and you still do to this day. Uh, tell me what uh, tell me what life has been like for you after football professionally what what have you been working on and what do you enjoy working on? Well I've been I've been blessed to have uh, met some real good business partners uh, uh, one of my keep one of my friends uh, Mark Goldberg uh, very good who man. Worked, who worked for a company called Veritex and he and I've been working for almost eight, nine, 10 years together as a court reporting company. And I do PR on behalf of the, the company. And through his relationship, I've met a guy named Phil Zanluk, who owns a uh, exhibit company called Metro Exhibits. And, and I've been with that company for about uh, six years, seven years. And I brought Lawrence Taylor onto that business. We built trade show booth around the country. So if you have a trade show, we do everything in the USA. Nothing is outsourced overseas. And Lawrence Taylor and I, we uh, we became business partner uh, in the company, and and we we because of our uh, work ethic, because we do we do do marketing, we do go out. Right. Um, we was made part partners in the business, and and from that we've been uh, given an opportunity to have our own version of it. And uh, I'll, you're going to be the first to hear about it. The company is going to be called First Team. And it's, and it's LT and I. We're going to be um, owners. And it's for um, those diversity companies that look to do business. So we're excited about it. Good for you, OJ. Congratulations on that. And that how many people can say that they've played alongside Lawrence Taylor and then gone into a successful business with him. I mean, that's, that's something pretty special. And to be in business with OJ Anderson as well, I think is, is a pretty remarkable thing. And I don't doubt that you guys are having success with it because of your efficiency on the field and learning, learning the systems that work and your work ethic, as you said. Well, it's been a, it's been a pleasure being a, a partner with Lawrence Taylor. Uh, you know, um, he is as as determined as he is on the field, as as he is off the field, work ethic wise. It's been fun. Uh, Lawrence is a whole different person than most people think. I mean, he's that 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 terror, that crazed dog on the field, but he's he's totally something different. Off. LT is a complicated man, and he is much smarter than than most people realize he is. And both of you are remarkably intelligent guys. So I know that business is going to do well. And I don't, I don't have any doubt seeing success in businesses that you go in with him. Well, again, um, that's the side of Lawrence that, like you said, people don't know. Uh, one of the smartest men I've been around, uh, one of the most giving of himself. Um, people don't know this, but there were guys back in the day, if they needed financial help, Lawrence didn't even think, didn't even hesitate, did it. And a lot of people don't know that about him. Wow. He, he gave so much money to so many people without wanting it back, just did it. 
And he did a lot of appearances on behalf of some of his teammates where he commands so much more, but he would do those kind of things for favor, you know, you know, because he was a teammate. You need his help. He was there. There's no doubt that he has great character. And, and it's, it's a shame because there have been some things publicly that sure. haven't gone so great with him, but, but who hasn't had their, their bad moments, you know, and, and uh, I, I, I'm going to tell you a secret. You, you guys, when you were training at pace back in the day, you were going to our hometown bar, Michael's tavern. So <laughs> we got to see you guys up close. And I, I got to tell you, not only were you guys not trouble. You guys were delightful. Whether you were having a drink or not, I know you don't drink, but nope. LT was there, Leonard Marshall was there, Joe Morris there, you were there. And you guys were great. You guys were so much fun to be around. There was so much positivity in that group. Well, again, it's, it speaks about your, your coaching, your coaching staff. Uh, you know, Parcel said, hey, man, you know, you got to treat these places just like you would treat your home. You know, you want, you want people to treat your house with respect when they come in. If you go to these bars or taverns, you have the same respect, you know? And, and, and just one thing you said about, about Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence made a lot of mistakes and done a lot of things, but I learned a long time ago. It said, who without sins, let him cast the first stone, mm -hmm. okay? Right. I don't think any of us can sit back and not say we've done something. And somehow we got away with, and you know, and we look back and go, if that would have, got out of, about to got caught, whatever. So yeah, everybody made those mistakes and, and, and people gonna continue to make mistakes. It, you know, you keep, you keep living, you keep making mistakes. That's just part of life. It's not about the mistakes you make. It's about where you go from there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Not remaking them. Tell us yeah. about your scholarship fund. It's a, oh, the OJ Anderson scholarship foundation, I believe. Tell us about that. Well, I'm, I'm excited about that. It started in West Palm Beach, Florida, where, um, I grew up, I started a long time ago, just giving kids a chance, like somebody gave me, I had a scholarship, but there was a lot of kids that came out of high school that wanted to go to college, but was shortening funds. And I used to just do it myself and for a long time. And then financially just wasn't feasible for me to do it. And I kind of let it go for a while. And, and then uh, uh, a friend of mine, whose sister I, I went to school with, uh, named, uh, named Shanita, Graham, a sister Laverne, came to me about restarting my organization again for kids with the help of a guy named Ray Robinson. And uh, we started the Indiana Scholarship Foundation back up again in West Palm Beach, Florida. And we had 10 years strong before COVID. And we also have given over $100,000 with the traces gifts of Mr. Ray Robinson. One, one beneficiary, Mr. Ray Robinson, every year gave between twenty dollars to $30,000 for kids to go to school through our scholarship foundation. Such an unsung hero. And if he knew I was putting him out there, he'll be in, totally embarrassed and <laughs> say I'm called for. But Ray Robinson did so much for the OJ Anderson Scholarship Foundation in West Palm Beach. I was able to parlay that into New Jersey with the help of Mark Goldberg, who became a real good friend of mine and, uh, and a business partner as well. And we have built the Oceana Scholarship Foundation in New Jersey. It, it's been beautiful to see the, the kids' faces when we give them checks to go off to school and 
You know, it, you know, education is so important and, and the youth of tomorrow needs so much help. And just to be able to be one of those engines that, that give with themselves that opportunity. And I'm gonna let you in on one other little thing. Lawrence Taylor is in Connecticut this weekend doing an event. He's coming from Connecticut back to New Jersey for Tuesday. Tuesday, Lawrence Taylor and I are giving two new public schools many helmets for the kids to have Christmas gifts for Christmas. Lawrence is coming. He he's detouring his trip to help me and a guy named Rodney Harrell to make this happen. And my business partner and Lawrence's business partner, Phil Zanluk of Metro Exhibit, picked up the cost of those helmets and the cost of changing Lawrence Taylor plane reservation to come in for Tuesday to make a difference to some kids who may not get anything for Christmas, but they gonna at least get a helmet from a Hall of Fame, AKA the Ghost, and Super Bowl MVP OJ Anderson. Wow. That's to me, it's worth all the bad that ever been done to all the people in the world. And you can turn around and bless someone else. And I wish the press would come out and, and jump on board because they, if it was something negative, they'd be all over it. This is a feel-good day. Absolutely it is. And you guys are doing good, really good things, OJ. I am so proud of that, and I am so impressed with you guys and every all these things that you're doing are just amazing. OJ, you're an element of New York history that transcends the Giants. It transcends sports. The mindset that you brought to the game and the lessons that you laid down for others are as valuable to us as a society as anything learned on or off the field. Because what you illustrated in the face of diversity during your career, when the chips were down, was selflessness and generosity and most of all, great courage. And I commend you for the legacy that you leave, not just on the field, but for this great place that we now call New York and for our entire society to observe and learn from the examples you set. You've left us with great lessons and, and I commend you and it's an honor to know you. And I say, God bless to you and your family, sir. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you and to share these, these um, moments of encouragement to all um, people like you, is why people like me and other guys stay relevant because you guys understand uh, the importance of getting information to our youth of tomorrow to let people like myself don't go unnoticed for the reason you said. And all you can do as a, as a person is thank you. Thank you for your uh, attentiveness. Thank you for having the, the, the opportunity to, to, to say what you need to have said. And I just appreciate you giving me a chance to, to share, you know, what I had to share. And, you know, and I leave you with this. There are going to be obstacles in your life. There are going to be things that's going to challenge your faith. 
that's going to challenge you as a person. And you have to reach back to those things that you was taught when you was young about persevering, about overcoming those obstacles. And you got to always keep faith. Keep God in mind and keep faith that you think you got it bad as always somebody got it worse. And that's my advice. That's great advice, sir. And you're, you're, a great, you're a great man. You're a great New Yorker and you're a great American. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. And you're welcome. You're welcome here with me anytime, OJ Anderson. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you, Mr. Kelly. I appreciate you giving me this platform. You got um, it, sir. And I look happy. forward to speaking with you again. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm beating the odds. You know, whenever I finish the game, I'm beating the odds. Win, lose, or draw, I'm beating the odds because I'm counting out. I'm not supposed to be able to do this. Folks, if you're enjoying Island Voices on YouTube, please be sure to hit the red subscribe button to get every episode, which we release at least one Friday every month. You can watch or listen to Island Voices Podcasts. On YouTube, it's Island Voices Podcast. Island Voices Podcast on YouTube. Or just listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're watching or listening, thank you so much and welcome aboard. Island Voices is a production of Chance Kelly, Inc. and may not be reproduced or re-exhibited in any manner, in whole or in part, without authorization. Thank you.